The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. You have goals. Reach them fast with IU Online's Accelerated Degree Programs. Our six- and eight-week courses are taught 100% online and can fit any schedule. Advance your career with a bachelor's in informatics. It only takes 10 minutes to apply. Earn an Indiana University degree that's valued around the world. Get started today at IU Online. In 1947, there were a number of reports in Roswell, New Mexico, of a, an unidentified flying object incident. Lightning flashed outside, mere feet away from the window. The crack of thunder followed a split second later. Its roar shook every part of the small metal craft. A crash was inevitable. The pilot and his bare-bones crew were unfamiliar with the sky patterns over that particular patch of desert. In the pitch-black darkness of the night, they hadn't even realized that they were flying directly into a cumulus cloud until it was too late. The aircraft jolted and rocked as the first bolt of lightning struck the outer hull. The ship was in bad shape, and it was going down. Pieces of the hull began coming loose as the craft began its rapid descent. What remained of the ship landed some 30 miles outside the town of Roswell, New Mexico. The whole crew perished on impact. They'd received no burial, no funeral, no dignity in death. Their corpses would be gathered up, hidden away, dissected, examined, and disposed of. The knowledge gained from these studies would be kept from the public eye. Why the secrecy? Well, this crew and this aircraft were not of this world. Are we alone? Have we been alone? Will we be alone? Stories of alien visitation have been ingrained in human history. Alien life may not be confirmed, but our obsession with it can't be ignored. Welcome to Extraterrestrial on the ParCast Network. I'm Tim. And I'm Bill. Every Tuesday, we visit the marvelous and strange stories about our encounters with beings from another world. We're aware that some of these tales may seem completely unbelievable. Others may seem all too real. But these stories shed light on human nature, human beliefs, and human psychology. And each story has garnered hundreds, if not millions, of true believers. And for that reason, we think they're worth exploring. Today, we're discussing the Roswell Incident of 1947, in which the discovery of mysterious, unidentified debris kicked off decades of speculation regarding UFO activity in the deserts of the American Southwest. This week, 
we'll cover the incident itself and the revelations that came to light in the immediate aftermath of that night when something crash-landed in the desert just outside of Roswell, New Mexico. Next week, we'll look at the decades-long legacy of the incident and how, to this day, ufologists are still grappling with the implications of what really happened on that fateful night. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. Head to ParCast.com merch for more information. If you had driven through the town of Roswell, New Mexico in the early 1940s, you would likely have made little note of it. The city was not unlike many of the other desert towns that populated the remnants of the Old West Territory of New Mexico, Arizona, and Nevada. It was small, with acres of brown and yellow plains between the numerous ranches that surrounded the main town. Back then, Roswell's population was mostly made up of ranchers, farmers, and the workers and pilots from Roswell Army Airfield, which was located three miles away. The Air Force base gave the town some small aspect of noteworthiness. There was also an American POW camp nearby, which had supplied a workforce of German prisoners during World War II. These prisoners worked on buildings in Roswell that still stand to this day. But the military significance didn't even distinguish Roswell within its own state. Roswell Army Airfield was one of seven air bases that operated in New Mexico during the Second World War, and Roswell was one of as many towns that provided support to such bases. The closing of the POW camps following the conclusion of World War II should have relegated the town to the annals of municipal obscurity. But then, on June 14, 1947, a resident named Mac Brazel spotted something peculiar. Brazel worked as the foreman of the J.B. Foster Ranch, 35 miles northeast of Roswell. By all accounts, it was a solitary existence. Brazel's family lived in Tularosa, nearly 100 miles away. The ranch had no electricity, no telephone, and no running water. But it did have a beautiful view of the night sky in all its glory, unobstructed by the light pollution of civilization. Still, the sense of isolation must have been staggering. The nearest living soul would have been over 10 miles away in one of the neighboring ranches. Out on those fields, day in and day out, Brazel likely felt truly alone, and maybe he preferred things that way. Most people who knew Mac described him as a quiet, contemplative type. He kept to himself and only spoke his mind when he absolutely had to. Brazel's character has been compared to that of an old-style cowboy. He was the kind of man who preferred to spend his day on his horse, minding the fields. He definitely seems like a man who enjoyed being alone. But he wasn't alone, at least not in the cosmic sense. On June 14th, Brazel was surveying the grazing fields when he spotted something in the distance. There were specks of black and silver dotted across the usually yellow hue of the distant plains. Brazel approached the site, which quickly revealed itself to be a spread of strange, unnatural debris. Metal, rubber, tinfoil, paper, and sticks. 
The wreckage was spread out over around 200 yards. Most of the pieces were fragments. There was too much material over too large an area for one man to pick it all up. The bigger pieces that Brazel noticed seemed to be parts of a large, round, aircraft-like device. However, the foreman didn't have the slightest idea what type of aircraft it could be. This was in the late 1940s, just as America was in the beginning throes of the Cold War with Soviet Russia. People were being warned every day about the pressing threat of nuclear global annihilation. Spies were everywhere. Brazil may not have made the connection. He may not have considered that the wreckage was part of some kind of testing bomb or a Russian spy plane, or even an American device from the nearby Roswell Army Airfield. If he had considered these things, maybe he would not have done what he did. What he did was nothing. He gathered up some of the smaller pieces, returned to the ranch house, and presumably didn't tell anyone about the crash for weeks. One could guess Brazel's motivations. He was all alone out on that ranch with no easy means of communication to the outside world. He didn't know what the wreckage was or where it had come from. The sudden appearance of the strange materials might not have registered with Brazel as something worth getting alarmed over. Alternatively, Brazel could have been scared. He'd later say that the sheep on the ranch outright avoided the debris field, as if the materials themselves were emitting some threatening aura meant to keep unwanted eyes away. Mac Brazel was the kind of man who preferred to stay out of trouble whenever he could. And maybe, just maybe, he spotted that spread of mysterious wreckage and knew in his gut that it could only mean trouble. So he left the rest of the debris where it was and went about his duties. However, after two weeks, the supposed crash site began to interfere with operations at the ranch. The sheep refused to go near the clutter and Brazel realized he'd need help if he wanted to move all of it out of the way. We should note that due to a number of conflicting reports and accounts of what exactly happened in Roswell in 1947, the dates we're about to discuss will be approximations. Around July 4th, 1947, Brazel returned to the wreckage site with his family, who were visiting him at Foster Ranch. Brazel and his son, Vernon, gathered up more of the material and took it back to the ranch house. A few days later, on July 6th or 7th, Brazel drove into Roswell to sell wool and to pick up supplies. It was there that he overheard ranchers talking about flying disks and realized that it might be prudent to let someone know about the debris. If nothing else, he would be able to get help cleaning it up. Brazel approached Sheriff George Wilcox and told him about the wreckage he'd found on the Foster Ranch. Wilcox received a phone call while Brazel was in his office. It was Frank Joyce, an announcer for the local radio station, who reportedly sometimes called Wilcox for news leads. Wilcox put Brazel on the phone with Joyce. Joyce interviewed Brazel about what he'd found on the ranch. The sheriff then called Roswell Army Airfield and let the military know about what Brazel had found. Brazel met with Captain Sheridan Cavett and Major Jesse Marcel, who followed him back to Foster Ranch and the crash site. The three men collected as much of the material as they could and took it back to the ranch house. That night, they laid out the parts they had recovered. All three of them were baffled. 
they'd never seen anything like it before. Marcel and Cabot were both high-ranking officers stationed on an Air Force base. They would have been familiar with any satellite or unmanned aerial devices that would have been employed over that airspace. And yet, neither of them had the slightest idea what they were looking at. After some time and experimentation, the trio fit some of the larger pieces together. As best as they could tell, the object was some form of large disk. Brazel described the incomplete reconstruction as being at least 12 feet in diameter and as large as a tabletop. For his part, Jesse Marcel noted how some of the pieces were lined with strange, indecipherable markings. Purplish in color, the markings were small, simple shapes lined up like letters in a sentence. The men thought this might be some kind of code. But Marcel, an intelligence officer, didn't recognize the lettering as any code used by the army. The men tried to manipulate the individual pieces. They didn't bend, they didn't break. Marcel and Brazel even struck some of the pieces with hammers. The blows rebounded off, leaving no dents, no scratches. The material was, as Marcel described it later in life, unlike anything he had ever seen. Cabot and Marcel stayed the night at the ranch house. The next day, July 7th or 8th, they gathered up all the material they had collected and transported it back to Roswell Army Airfield. Brazel went with them. He was asked to come along so that he could provide his official statement to military officials. But when they arrived at the base, Brazel was immediately taken into military custody. Coming up, the story of the strange material on the Foster Ranch gets out. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Now, back to the story. On July 8, 1947, Mac Brazel accompanied Major Jesse Marcel and Captain Sheridan Cavett to Roswell Army Air Force Base. They brought with them a collection of mysterious debris that Brazel had found on the grounds of Foster Ranch. After dropping off Brazel and the material, Marcel and Cavett reported to their commanding officer, Colonel William Blanchard. As soon as the military found out about the wreckage, they did two bizarre things. First, they had Brazel detained. Brazel had agreed to accompany Marcel and Cabot to the base so that he could provide his official statement on what he knew. But now, he was in custody. Second, Colonel Blanchard issued a press statement. He informed reporters that the military had found a flying disc on Foster Ranch. The story took off, which wasn't surprising. There was a growing interest in UFOs at that point in history. Just a few weeks before the Roswell story went public, on June 24, 1947, a man named Kenneth Arnold had reported seeing unusual objects in the skies near Mount Rainier in Washington State. The press that reported on Arnold's claims had coined the term flying saucer in their coverage. 
This event would actually go on to be the first widely reported sighting of an unidentified flying object in American history. Thus, in the summer of 1947, newspapers were eager for flying saucer stories. By referring to the debris as parts of a flying disc, Colonel Blanchard had given them the story they were looking for. The July 8, 1947 copy of the Roswell Daily Herald reported on Blanchard's statement. The headline read in big, bold letters, RAAF captures flying saucer on ranch in Roswell region. Brigadier General Roger Ramey realized that he had a problem as soon as he saw the headline. Ramey was in command of Fort Worth Air Force Base, where the debris had been sent after Marcel and Cavett had delivered it. After a quick inspection of the material, Ramey made haste to hold a press conference. Just a few hours after the Roswell Daily Herald story hit the newsstands, the Army brass had revised its statement. Ramey showed the gathered reporters pieces of the debris that had been recovered. He made a point to allow the press to get up close to look at the scraps, all while emphasizing that there was absolutely no mystery in regards to where it all had come from. Ramey made it clear that the wreckage was from a weather balloon. And with that, the story died. The global press made little note of the fact that the Army had backtracked its statements after mere hours. There were few at the time who questioned why the Army would be so quick to clarify that the thing they'd recovered was not a flying saucer. Consider the political climate of the late 1940s. World War II had just ended. The nation was caught up in a mood of patriotism as the threat of communist Russia became more evident. The Kennedy assassination was decades away from taking place. Area 51 was just an obscure military outpost known as Groom Lake. The National Intelligence Agency was still a few months out from being restructured as the CIA. It was a different time from our more conspiracy-conscious present. All this goes to say that on that day in 1947, when a government official told the world that the object suspected of being a flying saucer was, in fact, a harmless weather balloon, everyone believed him. We believed what we were told, uh, basically, uh, and did what we were told. Not a lot of questions asked as you would have today. And it was a very... Uh, the brass had the say-so. On July 9th, 1947, the Roswell Daily Newspaper published a follow-up article. This headline read, General Ramey Empties Roswell Saucer. By most accounts, that official story stuck, and thus the story of a possible UFO in Roswell was effectively dead. Almost no one found the government's back and forth on the issue suspicious. But Mac Brazel did. Brazel was released on July 8th, shortly after Ramey gave his press conference. Neither Brazel nor the military ever provided much detail as to why Brazel was detained. We don't even know what they discussed behind those closed doors at the Roswell Army Air Base. But considering that Brazel was taken into custody just before or at the same time that Colonel Blanchard made his public announcement of the discovery and was only released after General Ramey had clarified the Army's statement, it's not hard to guess the real reason behind Brazel's detainment. The Army was holding him until they could get their story straight. 
On July 9th, the day after his release, Brazel gave an interview to the Roswell Daily Newspaper. The headline read, Harassed rancher who located saucer, sorry he told about it. The story largely read like a corroboration to the official military story. Brazel described the events of the previous few weeks, from his discovery of the debris to his leading Marcel and Cabot to the wreckage site. His description of the material found didn't come off as particularly noteworthy. He described tinfoil, paper, tape, and sticks, which made a bundle of about 18 inches long and 5 inches thick. But at the very end of the article, Brazel seemed to let something slip. In his own words, he wasn't sure that the materials he had found were from any kind of weather balloon. He followed up by stating that if he found anything else on the ranch, the army would have a hard time getting him to say anything about it. Now, the meaning there is a little unclear. Brazel could be saying that he wouldn't tell the army about any additional debris he might find. Or he could have meant that he wouldn't speak publicly about anything he found, even if the army wanted him to make a statement. Regardless, there seems to be an implication here that the army knew more than they were letting on. And Brazel was privy to whatever that information was. If there was more to the wreckage than what General Ramey showed the press back in 1947, Brazel never let on. He never again spoke publicly about what he had found on the Foster Ranch. Had Brazel found something else? Something that scared him into silence? To answer that question, we need to shift perspectives to Frank Joyce. Recall that Frank Joyce was the radio announcer who called Sheriff Wilcox on July 7th, right when Brazel was in the sheriff's office. Joyce ended up interviewing Brazel over the phone about what he'd found and intended to air the interview that night. But when he reviewed the tape, the audio was deemed too low quality to be suitable for broadcast. Joyce asked Brazel to sit down with him a second time for a repeat interview at the home of Walt Whitman, the owner of the radio station. Now, there are two things to note here. The first is that we have a timeline discrepancy in this account. The previously sourced account of Brazel's activities from July 4th to the 8th state that he met Marcel and Cabot on the same day he informed Sheriff Wilcox about the wreckage. He then stayed with Marcel and Cabot until the next day when he went with them to Roswell Army Air Force Base, where he was taken into custody. In that timeline of events, there's no point where Brazel could have gone unsupervised to sit down with Joyce at Whitman's house. The second thing of note is that Joyce felt that his interview with Brazel was worth repeating so it could be broadcast to a larger audience. But we'll never know for sure what Brazel told Joyce in those interviews because the tapes have never been made available to the public. According to Joyce, while Brazel was in custody, military officers came to the radio station and confiscated all copies of both interviews. They were likely destroyed, but even if they weren't, they haven't been released since. Confiscating the tapes kind of makes sense. If the army was unsure of what they were dealing with when Brazel first showed them the debris, it would seem to be standard practice for them to take control of the narrative and control the story. What doesn't make sense is the fact that the tapes weren't returned. After all, if the debris really was just from a weather balloon, why all the secrecy? 
It is also possible that Joyce's account isn't accurate. Most of his take on the story was gathered from interviews conducted decades after the fact. But Frank Joyce was a public radio news personality. His reputation was staked on his reliability as a reporter. Why would he lie about something this consequential? The answer to all these questions might have to do with what Mac Brazel told Joyce in that very first phone call. According to Joyce, Brazel was much more distraught during that initial phone conversation on July 6th or 7th than most accounts let on. Joyce recalled that Brazel was upset about the stench. As in the stench that emitted from the burned, rotting bodies that Brazel found at the crash site. When Joyce pressed for more information, Brazel referred to the bodies as those of little people. Joyce proposed that the bodies may have been test monkeys from a military operation that went awry. But Brazel was adamant that the corpses he had found weren't monkeys and that they weren't human. In the alleged second interview, Joyce asked Brazel about the bodies. He made a joke about little green men a phrase that, at the time, had begun to be synonymous with aliens and flying saucers following the Kenneth Arnold UFO sighting. Brazel's only response to Joyce's joke was that the bodies he saw weren't green. Frank Joyce told this story to ufologists Thomas Carey and Donald Schmidt in 1998, over 50 years after the Roswell incident. The elapsed time between the actual events and Joyce's recollection of them should be taken into account. Still, it paints a picture of a much more significant find and, by extension, a much bigger cover-up than what was initially reported in 1947. Imagine what was going through Mac Brazel's head on that summer night. A raging thunderstorm sent him to bed early. He missed the shooting star that flew across the horizon and crash-landed nearby. In the morning, he came across a startling sight, the remnants of a spacecraft and the bodies of the aliens, dead on impact, strewn about. What do you do when you come across such incontrovertible proof that we are not alone? Who do you tell? Who do you trust? Brazel quickly learned the answer to that question. No one. After his experience in military custody, he never again spoke publicly about the Roswell incident. Mac Brazel died in 1963. His son, Bill, would later state in interviews that Mac's family had learned very little about his experience during the Roswell incident, beyond what was already widely known. To Bill, Mac seemed like he thought that keeping what he knew to himself was a noble thing. His experience with the press and the military in 1947 had all but confirmed that being associated with a UFO, even a suspected UFO, would bring nothing but grief to him and his family. If there was anything more to Mac Brazel's story, he kept it to himself and in turn helped kickstart one of the most famous UFO conspiracies of all time. Coming up... We'll examine the reports of unusual activity in and around Roswell that have surfaced in the 70 years since 1947. Now, back to the story. If you visit Roswell today, you would be just one of the thousands who seek out the desert town every year. 
the International UFO Museum is there. The town center offers guides to alien tours, which will take you across major sites related to potential alien activity. You can even go on a private tour of the actual spot where Mac Brazel found the debris field. It will only run you around $250. In 2015, tourism generated nearly $100 million in revenue for the town. And a big part of that came from UFO true believers. Today, Roswell, New Mexico has branded itself as the unofficial UFO capital of the world. Aliens, it turns out, are big business. And yet, despite the extent to which the town has taken ownership of its weird conspiracy-laden history, one of the most interesting things about Roswell, New Mexico, is about how uninterested the general public was back in 1947 when the first reports of flying saucers started to circulate. After the summer of 1947, interest in the possible UFO that had flown over Roswell went away. Mac Brazel's story vanished from the public spotlight and life seemed to go on. For over 30 years, the Roswell incident seemed to be an open and shut case. But then, in the late 1970s, researchers and historians began re-examining the Roswell case and the inconsistencies that had sprung from it. Jesse Marcel, the Air Force major who had recovered the debris from Foster Ranch, was interviewed in 1978 and relayed his account of the wreckage. Speaking freely, Marcel claimed that materials Mac Brazel had found were not of this world. Marcel hadn't been able to say much about the debris back in 1947. As an active service army officer, his orders were to keep quiet and let the army handle the official story. But in 1978, Marcel was retired and he was either free to speak his mind or else didn't care about any classified intel he was giving out. Interest in the Roswell case surged in the 1980s and 1990s as reporters tracked down anyone who might have been around to witness what really happened in the summer of 1947. As more and more accounts turned up, some were even found to corroborate Frank Joyce's story. Aliens or not, something weird was going on around Roswell Army Airfield during that time. The Army was up to something in the skies over the New Mexico desert and they were so adamant about keeping those secrets that they inadvertently created a situation that pointed to signs of alien activity. Thomas Carey and Donald Schmidt report that sometime in the 1990s, they spoke to a woman whose ex-husband was stationed at Roswell Army Airfield in 1947. Her husband came home one night that summer, around the time that Mac Brazel would have first been coming across the crash site. What stood out to her most was the disgusting smell emitting from her husband's uniform. That would seem to align with Brazel's own description of the stench that came off of the alien bodies. Additionally, an Air Force pilot named Myers Wani, who also would have been working out of Roswell Army Airfield Base in 1947, reportedly told his family on his deathbed that there had been more than one crash site. This was in line with a rumor that had begun to spread about the Roswell crash, that Foster Ranch was just one location where debris had fallen. There were other sites which the military had found and stripped clear of any signs of wreckage. Brazel never even saw the full scope of what had fallen from the sky that night. 
After Brazel alerted the military to his find, the bodies and important pieces of the wreck were all gathered up and spirited away to some secret military facility. The remaining insubstantial pieces were then presented to the press as evidence to back up the military's claim that Brazel had found a weather balloon. Even if there really were no aliens in the skies back in 1947, the Air Force was clearly in the midst of something worth covering up. And as far as covering up goes, they didn't do a great job. The theories and the new stream of revelations from witnesses or families of witnesses became so constant in the 1980s and 1990s that Roswell never stayed out of the public consciousness for long. Looking back, writers Joe Nickel and James McGeha proposed a term for how UFO stories cement themselves in the public consciousness. They called it Roswellian syndrome. It describes a case where an event occurs and is soon after linked to possible alien activity as public interest surges. Books like The Roswell Incident, published in 1980, The UFO Crash at Roswell, published in 1991, and Crash at Corona, published in 1992, had dug up the old reports, picked apart the inconsistencies in Mac Brazel's account, and given rise to an honest suspicion that aliens had, in fact, touched down in the desert back in 1947. The military, hoping to dispel these rumors, finally put out a report in 1994 that explained what had really happened in Roswell that summer. The report reiterated the nearly 50-year-old claim that the materials Mac Brazel had recovered were from a balloon. But the claim elaborated that the original device was no ordinary weather balloon. They were, in fact, from a Project Mogul balloon. Project Mogul was a top-secret program run by the Air Force in the late 1940s. The purpose of the program was to employ high-altitude surveillance balloons fitted with special microphones that could pick up on the long-distance sound waves that are emitted by atomic bomb detonations. The military used these balloons to try to pick up readings of Soviet weapons testing. The balloons used in Project Mogul had to maintain a steady altitude for hours at a time in order for their microphones to function. Thus, each one employed much larger balloon canvases than the commonly used weather balloons at the time. Recall that Brazel stated he thought the parts he discovered were too large to be just a weather balloon. Mogul was a top-secret operation. The military would have been inclined to cover up their relationship to the debris so as to keep a lid on any other operations they may have been conducting in the air over New Mexico. Though General Ramey technically wasn't lying when he claimed Brazel had found a weather balloon. Mogul's main equipment did use balloons. The military even put forth a possible explanation for the strange markings that Jesse Marcel had discovered. Marcel hadn't been able to decipher the coded language because it wasn't a code at all. It was a series of flower-shaped designs that ran across the streams of tape that was used to keep parts of the balloon together. The tape had been purchased at a toy store by an engineer who was in a hurry and probably hadn't considered what the childlike design would look like if, say, a mogul balloon crash-landed in the New Mexico desert. The military hoped that by publicizing this data just three years before the 50th anniversary of the Roswell incident, 
they would put to rest any ongoing beliefs about flying saucers or little green men. Instead, could be great for business. And the more the government tries to cover it up, it seems like the more people are interested in it. Interest in Roswell as a potential site of an alien encounter increased even more. In the 1940s, it felt natural to trust the government whenever it said that something was or wasn't true. But by the 1990s, many felt that the single biggest indicator of the fact that there was more to the Roswell story was the fact that the government was trying to explain what had really happened. Decades after the events of 1947, new witnesses were still being produced. New accounts of what was going on in Roswell back then were turning up. If nothing really happened, if that debris really was just from a surveillance balloon, would people still be making public statements about the event? Would the government still be trying to retroactively set the record straight? This, ultimately, is the instinct that rests at the core of extraterrestrial obsession. We don't know what they are. We don't know where they're from. We don't know what they want. And those great mysteries leave us to our own devices when it comes to providing answers for things that seem unexplainable. Roswell, New Mexico may be the focal point of alien obsession in the world. Imagine how things might have been different if more people had just believed Mac Brazel, or if Mac Brazel had shared the whole story. The Roswell incident of 1947 was just a footnote in the city's history for decades. By the end of the 1940s, most people just considered the events of that summer to be a case of a rancher having to deal with a crashed balloon. 50 years later, there are hundreds of stories about what really happened. The events of that summer in 1947 have become some of the most scrutinized in history. Roswell became synonymous with alien autopsies, murdered witnesses, and a government cover-up spanning decades. All the while, the town itself became one of the most famous sites to be associated with alien tourism. In our next episode, we'll discuss some of the wilder, less provable accounts of extraterrestrial encounters in Roswell. We'll also look at the character of the town itself and how it has maintained its relationship with the unknown, the suspicious, and the downright weird stories associated with it. Thanks for listening to Extraterrestrial. We'll be back next Tuesday with a look at how the town of Roswell transformed in order to accommodate its growing reputation as a hotbed of alien activity. You can listen to Extraterrestrial and all of ParCast's other podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Until then, keep your eyes on the sky. Extraterrestrial was created by Max Cutler. It's a production of Cutler Media and part of the ParCast Network. It's produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. Extraterrestrial is written by Colin McLaughlin and stars Bill Thomas and Tim Johnson. <laughs>